Yes, amen. Good morning to y'all. We're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis again today. And we're going to start in uh, chapter 5, verse 25, and we'll read through chapter 6, verse 8. So when you find Genesis chapter 5, verse 25, will you please stand for reading God's word? Okay. (coughs) Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I, whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again this morning before your throne of grace, looking to you. Lord, we want to thank you, first of all, Thank you for your grace. Even in these passages, uh, as the one we're considering today, where there is a, a record of great evil on the part of man, there is yet words of grace, your grace at work in human history, working to bring a people to yourself, to bring a people to salvation, to be made in your likeness, to spend eternity with you. Lord, we are so thankful that though we are sinners and though we deserve your wrath, because of your love, You have extended grace. Grace. So, Father, as we read this through this passage and um, consider what, what it is saying and how it is relevant for us today, Lord, um, we, we just ask in the process of that that we would have a deeper appreciation based on a greater understanding of who you are and what you have done. And may it all result in glory and honor and praise to you. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the Bible is brutally honest about man's condition. Um, and so, we, of course, we talked about the fall a few weeks ago, the sin of Adam and Eve, the rebellion. And uh, so we see as we continue to move through the book of Genesis, and we're going to continue to see, that man's condition does not improve. Okay? And there's, there's, never, there's never really any positive apart from God um, just breaking in and, uh, and, and manifesting His grace. And he does that. He does that repeatedly. 
So um, the, sto- the story of the Bible, uh, I guess, you know, that, that would be one of the ways to think of it. Um, and uh, you, you just kind of think in terms of big picture. It's, it's always a story of grace, right? I mean, you, you, again, people sometimes want to separate and say, well, the Old Testament is about a God of wrath and the New Testament is about a God of love as if there were two different gods. Um, and not only are, are there not two different gods, there's only one God. Um, not only is that true, but we see in both covenants his love and his wrath both manifested. And the Old Testament is certainly not void uh, of examples of His grace. In fact, it is covered um, with examples of His grace. And so we'll see that again today. And I'm, I'm giving you that up front so you'll know because some of this looks pretty depressing <laughs> when, you read, when you read through it. But um, that's just to highlight that man's condition is really, really, really bad apart from a relationship with the Lord. All right, so um, here's just just a real simple kind of summation, main point, all right? Um, The human heart is evil, and our only hope is God's grace. The human heart is evil, and our only hope is God's grace. Grace, and I might say, and you know, I can say that in this context, um, but I just say this as a as a reminder and as an exhortation. Um, when we're dealing with people out in the world, um, when you use the term like evil, a lot of times that's going to have to be defined. Um, they will often think they know what we mean by it and have a totally wrong concept. Um, so, you know, when you're Talking about these things with other people, you 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 may uh, expound upon those things. Don't I guess what I'm saying is don't take it for granted. You know when you when you use the term like man's rebellion or the evil in man's heart or sin. You know of course the the term sin. Don't take it for granted that they just understand what you're talking about because a lot of times they don't. What we are talking about um, obviously is rebellion against our Creator, right? So when I use terms like evil or sin. Um, I think that's what the Bible means by those. We're talking about rebellion against the Creator. A, we, this morning in Sunday school, we were in Romans. So uh, you can think of it in light of Romans 1. What we're talking about is a willful refusal to glorify God. Right? That's what we mean by sin. That's what we mean by um, pride and evil in the human heart. And I use the term um, heart there because the Bible so often does. Um, but to, to make the point, and, and Lord willing, we'll expound on this, unpack this a little bit as we go through these verses. But to make the point that the problem, our problem, the problem, <laughs> resides inside of us. It's, it's not something outside of us. So the human Heart is evil and given to rebellion against God. And our only hope is God's grace. Now, let me just point out a, a few things here, kind of by way of introduction. Um, we're, we are uh, going through the lineage here, finishing the, these last few verses of the lineage in, in, in chapter 5, the lineage of Seth. And we, uh, we had gotten last week up to verse 24, and that brings us, or up to verse 25, and that brings us to Methuselah. Um, now, Methuselah, a lot of people will know about Methuselah because he's the longest life recorded in human history, okay? Uh, so, um, he lived a long time, 969 years. And interestingly, if you do the math, um, you know, how long it was till. Um, Methuselah had Lamech, and how long it was till Lamech had Noah, and then how long it was till the flood. Methuselah died the year of the flood, um, and he was 969 years old. Now you're probably thinking, does that mean he died in the flood? <laughs> well, I don't know, but he died. He died in the year of the flood. Um, and interestingly, back in chapter four. 
the lineage of Cain ends with a statement. I mean, first he's just going through, you know, so-and-so had so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. But then he ends with a statement by Lamech, Cain's descendant named Lamech. And that statement is in verses 23 and 24. Well, as you're getting to the close of the line of Seth here in chapter 5, it, it, it comes to the close with a statement by Seth's Lamech. Now, it's a different Lamech from, from uh, chapter 4. But you have a Lamech in each line. And uh, Cain's Lamech makes a statement, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, sinful uh, expression, really what it is. And then here, um, Lamech makes a, the descendant of Seth makes a statement about Noah. And this is, of course, where we're introduced to Noah. The story, and I think it was last week we talked about Enoch. The story of Enoch provides us with assurance of life beyond this life. The story of Noah provides us with um, assurance of salvation. God does intervene and save some, right? That's, that's what we have in the, in the story of Noah. So, um, just like in the in the uh, in the story about um, Enoch, and, and try to put your put yourself in that day, um, or even in the day that Moses that Moses is writing these things, and people hear about this man who never died. God just took him. He walked with God, and God took him. He he was not. Well. People in those days obviously didn't have the whole Bible like you and I do now, and we have the whole um, we have a lot of light shed on the doctrine of the resurrection, right? We know about the promise of eternal life and um, eternal life being spending an eternity with God, and they didn't have as much light as we do on the subject. So, so put yourself in those shoes for a minute, and you hear about this man who did not die. And that's a testimony. It's a witness that there is something beyond this life. He didn't pass through death. Where did he go? He went somewhere. And so it was just a a testimony regarding uh, even the resurrection. Well, in Noah's case, it's very similar. But um, here we have God breaking in um, to rescue some from his own wrath. He's determined because of the extent of the sinfulness of man that he's going to bring judgment and essentially wipe out every living thing. But in the, in the midst of that, he, God determines to save one family, Noah and his family. So it, it also is, is a... Uh, provides assurance for us regarding the grace of God and salvation. Now, as I said, in these first few verses, we get a little introduction to to Noah. Um, Look at verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So now here, Lamech has a son. He names him Noah. And then Lamech lived, verse 30 says, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here's our introduction to Noah, which we're going to be talking quite a bit about, Lord willing, in the next few um, sermons here. Um, His name is apparently related to the Hebrew term for rest. Now, I found this very interesting, and I, and I, um, 
I'm not going to pretend to fully understand it. I, I'm going to I'm going to try to give you a what I what I think is going on here with verse 29 because I I, I I did I found this this statement very interesting by Lamech and I tried to you know how does this play out? Here's the statement that Lamech makes about his son Noah and remember the term Noah meaning rest or relief or at least it's it's a similar term in Hebrew so that's probably why he he uh, he used it, uh, which he goes on to explain. Here's the statement: Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. So, in other words, Noah, he's, he's the one that brings relief. This one shall bring us relief or rest. And there's the there's the Hebrew term for rest behind that word relief. There, Noah sounds like that, or is or is uh, related to it, and so he names him Noah. So again, he says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And that just kind of fascinated me, because I'm thinking, okay, I mean, it's not unusual in the Bible for, um, to, to get definitions behind names. Uh, names really meant something. You know, they, people didn't name their son... Uh, Bill or George or Abram or whatever, just because it sounded cool, you know, it was it was the it was the popular name of the day or something like that. They usually were trying to reflect. They wanted a name that would reflect the character of the child. You know, of course, you know if you're naming a newborn, then you're you're projecting <laughs> that this is how it's going to be. You're hoping this is going to be the character of the child. Um, or they would name them after you know some. Somebody that was important in their family line, you know, maybe a father, or grandfather, or something like that, just as we still do in our day. And then sometimes God would come on the scene and change a name because of what He was going to do with an individual. So you take Abram. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, what today is Iraq, and you know He said, "You're going to come and go where I tell you to go, and I'm going to I'm going to make of you." Um, out of you many nations. And through your seed, that is through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. So, so the name stands for what he's, who he is, who he's going to be, who God has made him to be. And we even see Jesus doing that in the New Testament. You know, he changes Simon's name to Petros. We say Peter, which means rock. Rock. He was the rock. <laughs> uh, so, um, and why would Jesus do that? Well, again, to signify um, who Peter is, or, or actually at that point, who he's going to be, you know, who he's going to make him to be, because uh, Peter was a little bit more like mush, you know, originally. Um, but Jesus made him a rock. And after the day of, the, the day of Pentecost, after Peter was... After the, the resurrection and Peter was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, you, do, you do see quite a different man, and, and he's a rock. By the grace of God, by the plan of God, um, he lives up to his name, his new name, Peter, Petros. So names mean something. Well, Noah's name means rest. And I don't know if, if you or I had to pick, I mean, knowing the story like we do, we, we know how the story plays out, we would probably... I don't know. Maybe we call him Skipper. You know, that's a good one. You know, he's going to captain a boat, right? <laughs> or probably what we would do. I mean, I'm a little biased there, but um, probably what we would do is is pick some name that had to do with judgment, right? Something that reflected the judgment that's going to come on the earth in Noah's day. I mean, I just doubt the first thing that would pop in our mind is rest. And and then I look at Lamech's statement, and here's what he says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, this one shall bring us relief. Now, I think that first phrase is important, out of the ground, because again, I've pointed this out before, but Moses, in writing this, he keeps reminding us, for good reason, he keeps reminding us that we are dirt. (laughs) I mean, what he's doing is just keeps putting it before us. Here's where you came from. Out of the ground. Out of the ground. 
And so, again, here, you know, Noah, out of the ground, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, think about that. That's, that's the curse that he's referring to. When Adam sinned and God cursed the ground, and, and this was the essence of it, toil, right, and labor as you, as you try to produce. The ground is not going to cooperate. And Lamech is saying, this one is going to bring us relief from that. So, you know, I'm thinking about that, and I'm, I'm thinking, how? I mean, how, does that, how is that fulfilled in the story? And, and, you know, I'm not sure I really have the answer except, except for this, that... Um, Ultimately, again, you know, and we've been already just, Moses is tracing out the line of Seth here. And, of course, the further you get into Genesis, we wind up getting to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so forth. Uh, and and what, what is happening, of course, is throughout the Bible, you know, this, this line is being traced, which will ultimately lead to Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Abraham, son of David, and in a unique sense, the son of God, son of God, God in the flesh, right? John, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then John 1.14, John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was incarnate. He became a human being. So I was just thinking about that and thinking maybe it's just looking that much ahead. That God is sending relief, kind of like uh, you know when God was um, cursing the serpent and He said, "I'm going to put in enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, and your seed, the serpent's seed, will bruise his heel, and he will crush." Your head. That is, the seed of the woman will crush your head. And he wasn't talking about Cain, you know, the firstborn son. And he wasn't even talking about Abel or Seth. That prophecy was looking far into the future and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So maybe something similar to that. Out of the ground, in fact, you know, possibly, you know, that's a reference to the incarnation there. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief. In other words, through Noah, relief is coming. You've got, you've got all, this whole wicked, evil generation living under the curse and just continuing to live out sinfulness. But then there's Noah who finds Grace, favor in the eyes of the Lord. And through this one, through Noah, relief is coming. Relief from the curse. From the painful toil and work. And, and I do think, by the way, that that's a... Even though he's being specific there in terms of uh, you know, work and painful toil, you, you, you take that wording uh, right back to chapter... Three there. Um, it's obviously what he's got in view. So I do think he's probably talking about the, res- the results of the curse as a whole, the consequences of the fall as a whole. And he's saying this one's bringing relief. And I th- again, I think the way that that's coming is that ultimately um, it is through him that the Savior comes. Now, there's our little bit of introduction to Noah, a man... Um, through whom relief will come, or you could say a man who will descend from Noah will deliver us from the curse. It'd be kind of a way to sum it up. Now, two, two things here. Um, I, I put a title in the bulletin, The Days of Noah. Two things that I want to cover here before we, we, we run out of time here, Lord willing. Um, first is this. These are days of human evil. I'm going to use that word again, but everybody knows what I'm talking about here. Um, we're talking about rebellion against God that continues. In fact, it's, it's increasing. So these days, the days of Noah, are days of human 
evil. Now, I want to, for a moment here, deal with these first few verses in chapter 6. Wow, these are um, <laughs> verses that people love to ask about. And, and let, me, let me just um, say, you know, as always with reading the Scripture, especially when you come across verses like this, one of the things we, we want to guard against is letting our imagination just kind of carry us away with all kinds of speculations, right? So I'm going to give you some uh, options here that I think are plausible. Uh, but let me read them first. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, um, who in the world are the Nephilim? And what in the world is it talking about when it says the sons of God um, took wives from the ch- children of men, came into them, and, and uh, so forth? What is going on here? Well, let me just warn you right up front, okay? My, uh, my suggestion for understanding this may not be as exciting <laughs> uh, as, uh, as what you might hope for, okay? But uh, I'm going to give you some other options as well because, uh, as I said, I think they're plausible. Um, but here we go. There, there are essentially... Um, three main views here, and I'm going to I'm going to read this to you from. Uh, for, this is actually from the Net Bible, the New New English Translation. Note the notes are very good. You can find this online, and the notes are very good. But um, I'm, I'm going to read these, and then I'll tell you where I'm where I'm at, where I lean. Okay. Um, so there are three major interpretations. Here's one. In the book of Job, the phrase clearly refers to angelic beings. I'm talking about the phrase sons of God. In Job, the phrase clearly refers to angelic beings. In Genesis 6, the sons of God are distinct from humankind, suggesting they were not human. This is consistent with the use of the phrase in Job. Since the passage speaks of these beings cohabitating with women, they must have taken physical form or possessed the bodies of men. An early Jewish tradition preserved in 1st Enoch 6 and 7, not a biblical book, um, but it is an ancient book. Uh, so it's not the Word of God, but it is, an ancient, it is ancient literature. An early Jewish tradition preserved in 1st Enoch 6 and 7 elaborates on this angelic revolt and even names the ringleaders. Now, the reason they're mentioning that is because uh, this has been a long-held Jewish tradition, and this is where it's coming from. It's coming from the, the, the book of Enoch. Um, and, and the idea is this, that when Moses says the sons of God, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Uh, this old tradition says that these were actually angelic beings who came down, took the form of human beings, and um, produced with women, produced children, who are called the Nephilim, the giants. Some, some translations translate that giants in verse 4. Now, um, I mean, I, I won't, I'm not going into this in great detail, but I'm just kind of giving you the gist of it. It is a long-held tradition um, Jewish tradition, and even some of the early church, um, father, what we call the church fathers who were writing, writing in early church history, um, accepted it as well. Okay, um, And there, there are, I can say this carefully, but there are good reasons for that in one sense. But it just seems to me there are even better reasons to reject it. Um, one is because angels are spirits, they are spirits. They're, they're not physical beings. And we do find times in the Old Testament where they take on 
the appearance of men. But I think that is a good way to describe it, the appearance of men. In other words, I don't think they, they, they don't truly become incarnate like Jesus did. And we don't read of angels being conceived in a womb of a, of a woman and so forth. No, but they, they came down and took on the appearance of a man. So I think the idea of uh, sexual relations with a woman is just something that you're, gonna, uh, you're not going to find support for anywhere else in the Bible. Okay? So that seems like to me a better reason to reject it, um, even though there are some reasons to accept it. Uh, like I said, in Job, uh, it's really the only other place this term is you, Job, Job 1 and, let's see, Job 1 6, Job 2 1, and Job 38 verse 7. This term, sons of God, is used there, and it is definitely referring to angels. So some people use that to uh, interpret here. All right, here's the second view. Um, some argue that the sons of God were members of Seth's line, traced back to God through Adam in Genesis 5, while the daughters of humankind, or daughters of men, were descendants of Cain. So we just got through going through these two lineages, the Cainites and the Sethites, and so some people interpret this as talking about those two families. And Seth's family is referred to as the sons of God because they're, they're righteous people, they're godly people. And Cain's line is referred to as uh, the, son, the uh, daughters of men, um, you know, just identified with man uh, because they're ungodly. And so what they're, what they're suggesting is that what Moses is talking about here is that godly men were taking wives from this ungodly clan. And they were mixing that way. So it was a moral thing, not, a, uh, you know, not, not angels mixing with humans, but, but moral people mixing with immoral people. Well, that is certainly a problem throughout the rest of the Bible. <laughs> but I'm not sure that's what Moses is getting at here. But I think that's a plausible view. Um, and then others, this is the third view, others identify the sons of God as powerful tyrants, perhaps demon-possessed. Um, a good example of that, by the way, if, uh, Kent Hughes has a, a really good commentary on Genesis, and this is the view that he takes. In other words, he's saying they are demon-possessed men, demonized um, men, so, and, then, and then, you know, they're, they're tyrants. Um, so that's another view. I, th- I think there's a. F- I'm just going to give you this, okay? This is kind of my view, or one I would lean heavily toward. We'll call the four- a fourth view here. Uh, there are probably others as well. I'm, th- those are just three of the major views. But I think there's a fourth view that's plausible, and and I think it's possible. Um, you, when you get to the end of L- Luke's genealogy in Luke, he calls Adam the son of God, and of course. Paul, I mean, he's not using that terminology, but Paul, uh, there are places where he makes that distinction too about God creating man, in other words, meaning directly, but then woman coming from man rather than, of course, women are created by God and come from God, but, I, but, but not in the same direct sense that Adam did. So Adam directly created by man, out of the dirt, out of the dust of the ground, directly created by God, out of the dirt of the ground. And then Eve, of course, is created by God, but she's created out of, taken from man. So, you know, that seems plausible to me as well, that that all we're talking about here is an idiom. Sons of God take daughters of men. A way of saying people got married. Men took wives. All right? So I, I think that's... I'm just throwing that out as, a, as another view as well. And certainly, uh, um, when Jesus talks about the days of Noah, He talks about how they were marrying and giving in marriage, right? Marrying and giving in marriage. Um, this may be just another way of saying that. In other words, that, this is what's going on. Because, look at, look at verse 1, when man began to multiply... When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So, I mean, it may just be a way of saying that um, people were marrying and giving in marriage. 
and, and, and the whole human race was multiplying. All right, so um, you can take those and check them out, and whichever one you want to um, cling to, just, uh, just make sure that uh, you're, you're trying to root your opinion firmly in Scripture, okay? Now, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. There are a couple ways this can be translated. Um, King James, the New American Standard, translated a little differently. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And I think that's what's going on here. The Lord's saying, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is flesh. By the way, there's another reminder. Man is flesh, created out of the dirt of the ground. God is creator. And I'm not going to always strive with him, God says, because he's, he's flesh. In other words, we're not talking about equals here. We're talking about creator and creation. And the creation is in sin and continuing in sin and continually increasing in sin. And so... The Lord says, My spirit shall not abide or strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So, so God makes a determination, I'm going to cut the days of man short because of his exceeding sinfulness. Now, <laughs> keep giving you these options. That's good, and people like options. Here, here's another, another option, all right, for the 120 years. You could take that as, a lot of people do, they say, it looks like we've been talking about all these people living hundreds of years, Methuselah lived to be 969. looks like now, at this point, God is saying, the lifespan for human beings is going to be 120 years. Plausible? I mean, you know, again, I don't think correct, but, but, uh, but that is a way of taking it. I think what he's saying here is, human beings have 120 years left and I'm wiping them out. Except, of course, for Noah and his family. My spirit shall not always strive with man. Man's days shall be 120 years. So, um, and it's during that period, if that view is correct, um, it's during that period that Noah preaches and builds the ark over roughly a 120-year period. And if you've uh, ever um, tried to take a close look at the dimensions of the ark, you can see why it would take 120 years, okay? It was big, 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 big. There's actually one you can see now in, uh, up in Kentucky, life-size. Haven't been there yet. Hope to go. I've been there, but they didn't have the ark there at the time. That's at Ken Ham's Creation Museum. They just opened it this past month. Life-size Noah's Ark. Uh, so, that'd be something to see. Okay, so we're about out of time. So let's let's uh, let's move on here. And and uh, here's the second thing. These are days of divine judgment and grace. Days of divine judgment and grace. Verse five. Oh, and and I should say, in light of what I told you earlier. Uh, about thinking that the sons of God and the daughters of men is just referring to human beings. And I think when you get to verse 4, the Nephilim uh, are just um, uh, great men in the sense that we use the term. Not, it, it, it can, some, some translations use the term giants. And again, that's a possibility. But it, it can also just, just mean they were powerful. You know, like we talk about great men in our day. And if I say, um, you know, the President of the United States is a great man... Well, probably in your mind, you don't picture somebody 30 feet tall. Um, but what you do understand is that I'm talking about somebody that's very powerful, right? So that term Nephilim just may simply mean that. They were on the earth in those days, um, and these were, latter part of verse 4, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, okay? All right, so verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We may come back into this next week because we're out of time, but, but, but I need to say this. Here, here's where the, 
Moses is making his main point. Sin is not a light thing. And it's not, you know, verse 1 says, when man began to multiply. Well, as, as human beings are multiplying, sin and sinfulness is not decreasing. It's not going down. Men are not getting better. Now, they're doing better, some better things. We talked about that earlier on with the, with the birth of technology and the birth of, of uh, you know, agribusiness and, and the birth of arts. We, we already talked about that back in chapter 4. So, they're, so men are doing some amazing things because they're created in the image of God and, and, and that manifests. But at the same time, Sin and man's sinfulness is increasing, if anything, not decreasing. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. You can contrast that, and I think this is exactly what Moses is doing. You, you can contrast that to chapter 1, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So when God created Adam initially... He looked at everything he had created and he said it's very good. And what he's doing now here in chapter 6 is looking at everything and saying it's very bad. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention... Now, listen to the language here and how specific Moses is. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart... I mean, he's getting down to the, the, the innermost parts of us. The deep recesses of our inner being, or however you want to think about it. I mean, you know, the heart. Already, already we're talking about the inner being, the heart of man. Sometimes to intensify that, people will say, heart of hearts. You're talking about the very core of who you are. Well, there... Moses says, not only the thoughts of man are corrupt, but it's like he's just trying to pile words upon words here, ideas upon ideas to intensify it. But the intentions of the hearts, or I'm sorry, the intentions of the thoughts of the hearts of men. His point is, man is corrupt to the core. To the core. It's not just a little bad, it's really, really bad. So much so that verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. Now, the question comes to mind, does, does God change His mind? Does God repent? Other passages tell us no. Um, I, don't, I don't think God uh, actually changing His mind here about creation. I don't think that's what the writer is intending to convey. I think what he is intending to convey is how strongly God feels about sin. That he could look at his creation at one point and say, it is very good. And now look at his creation and say, it grieves me. And describe it with terms like regret and grief. The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So we get a little uh, you know, wind of view into the heart of man and it's totally corrupt all the way down to the core. And then here, regarding this particular thing, we get a little wind of view into the heart of God and it's grieved. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of of the land. It's days of judgment. Because these are days of sinfulness of man. And just, I mean, does it sound familiar? I mean, we're, we're talking about just almost unbridled expressions of the corruption of the human heart. And you know, it's been there all along. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we have to have things go on. You think about our culture today, right here at home in the United States, or, or you could say in Western culture as a whole, and all of the perverseness that is 
In fact, we even use terms, you know, like coming out of the closet. So it's coming out, right out into the open. Sometimes we, we have to have those kinds of shockers to remind us that there really is a problem. Man, back in the 20th century, right? You know, pe- pe- before World War One, there was kind of a consensus that things were getting better because of the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment. And some people thought, you know, we're getting past all of this. There won't be any more wars because we're we're just advancing in technology and education. And then came a rude awakening. World War One, World War Two, Adolf Hitler, many others. Sometimes it, it takes those kinds of things to help us see that it's been there all along. I mean, it's like a, a sore popping up on you because you've got a cancer in your body. Well, the cancer was already there. Sore is just evidence of it. And all of these things that are going on in our society are just evidence of the problem. And and by the way, hey, the problem's not just out there. The problem's in here. It's the heart of man. And so God determined to bring judgment now, Lord willing, as, as we move on here, we get to talk more about that later, so I'm just going to leave it there for now because we're going to spend some time on Noah and the ark and the flood, the deluge. But it's also a day of God's grace, right? I mean, you look at the remainder of that little paragraph. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or grace, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord says, I'm sorry that I have made them. I mean, he is grieved to his heart. But then you get this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of all this wickedness, all this perverseness, and be careful now because you might be thinking I'm going to say, you might be thinking I'm going to say, in the midst of all of this ungodliness, there stands out this one godly man. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, but I don't think we ought to put as much of a highlight on Noah as we should on God. In other words, Noah's godliness is due to God's grace. We don't want to make the error of thinking that Noah is somehow different, essentially different from all of these other human beings. That would be comfortable, you know, because I could, I could move from that. If I could convince myself of that, I could move from that to me and say, yeah, I see all this craziness going on in the world and all this perversion and, and ungodliness, and, and, but I'm different. I don't think that's where Moses is shining the spotlight here. I think he's shining it on the grace of God. In the midst of this wickedness, And let me just say it this way, paraphrase it this way. In the midst of all of this evil and human wickedness, God determined to bestow His grace on Noah. In fact, God determined to bestow His grace on humanity through means of, at this point, through means of Noah. And eventually and ultimately through Jesus Christ. It's a day of grace. And you know what? So far, (laughs) we can still say that today. It is a day of evil. It is a day of wickedness. It is a day of perverseness. It is a day of ungodliness. Our culture is moving away from the Christian Influence that used to be so profound in our society, in our, in our whole Western culture. I mean, they're intentionally moving away from that. All that's true, 
But you know what? It is still a day of grace. God is, God is bestowing grace. He is calling a people unto Himself for His glory and for our good. Or to say it another way, God is still rescuing people from sin. So, just as it was in the days of Noah, everybody was all wrapped up in themselves. There was marrying and giving in marriage. I mean, there was normal activity going on. And there was corruption, you know, manifestations of pride and selfishness going on. Just as it was then, so it is today. But also, just as God showed favor to Noah then, we can now experience His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And even to a fuller extent. I mean, it's a great thing to be saved from a flood. (laughs) But that was just a type. That was just a shadow. Then, those who were saved were saved by being in the ark, right? Today, that's a picture of Christ. And today, we're saved by being in Christ. It's a day of grace. Day of grace. Would you stand, please? We'll just dismiss with a word of prayer. Lord willing, see you back tonight. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for gathering us here today. Thank you for the privilege of being able to read your word and consider these things. And Lord, help us to not stop now, but as we leave here today and go about our business, consider, thankfully, Your grace. And Lord, we pray, empower us to be witnesses to those around us that they too may come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.